I didn't go to journalism school, that's for sure. <laughs> Is that what every editor likes to brag? Uh, <laughs> probably. Welcome to the Montague Reporter Podcast. My name is Sarah Brown-Anson. I am the host and producer, and I'm here with Mike Jackson, who is the managing editor of the Montague Reporter newspaper. Hello, Sarah, and thanks for doing this podcast once again, and hello to all of our listeners out there in podcast land. Yes, it's very exciting to see the numbers of listeners. We've had 50 unique listeners in the last seven days, which is exciting. And um, we're looking to keep sprinting to the end of the year, and we'll bring you some more interesting stories. So keep listening, and as always, get in touch if you have any feedback. So I wanted to talk about what's going on with evictions in Franklin County. Reporter Sarah Robertson has written... Um, two articles that have been published in the Montague Reporter on this subject. And the one that was published in the November 12th edition is about the Leisure Woods Estates, where about a third of the eviction... Um, what is the term called? So these are these are notices, notices. to quit actions. Yeah. This is the first kind of the first step. Um, it's hard to, to, you know, when these things are, are very legal... Uh, jargon and it's it's hard sometimes to, to summarize it in a way that's readable um, we, we call them pre-eviction notices um, in in our headline <laughs> this mm-hmm. week and maybe that's a shortcut but basically these are uh, the first legal step that uh, if you own a building and you're trying to kick someone out of it that you have to do is basically you say um, you send this thing and uh, it can be resolved in, in a few different ways um, in some cases it could just be you know please pay this money and then the person does pay the money. But, you know, it's not always about that. And uh, even if there's a tenancy at will um, where you can you can give someone the boot for, for any reason, um, uh, you should still do this first before um, the next step, which is uh, called a, a summary process, summons a complaint. And that is uh, asking the person to show up in court and uh, gives them that right to do that. And then if they don't show up, or if they show up in court and the judge uh, doesn't see any reason to, to stop an eviction, then there's another thing which is confusingly also called a notice to quit, and that goes out. And those are sometimes like a 48-hour notice that goes through the sheriff's office. And that's basically, you know, pack pack your bags. We're going to be here with cops. It's interesting that Leisure Woods Estates is actually a mobile home, and everyone who lives there owns their personal home but they pay this company every month for public spaces and water, sewer, and heating services. Yeah, these are manufactured homes. Um, it is one of the names of this park is, is Leisure Woods Mobile Home something, but it's a little bit misleading because uh, not not the most mobile uh, homes. These aren't things people can just, you know, hook onto the back of a, a big enough pickup truck and, and drive over to another park. These are prefab uh, houses where they are... They usually own the house, but they're renting technically the land mm-hmm. under it. And mm-hmm. this is a place with uh, 150 uh, or so lots. And, you know, as our article gets into a uh, big history of, of contention between the uh, residents and this uh, management company, which bought the place in, I think, 97. Um, so there's, yeah, 11. It really popped out when we looked at the list. There's this whole list of them, all, all with Leisure Woods Estates, Inc. in the uh, plaintiff field. So, mm-hmm. One of the 
people who was quoted extensively in this article is named John Walsh, and he was the president of the Leisure Woods Tenant Association. Uh, this gentleman, John Walsh, is 80 years old, who lives there, um, and he made it seem like there were a lot of low-income and elderly people living in the in this park. Yep. Yeah, and so there's some uh, protection that they have in Orange. There's this uh, mobile home board that's set up that does essentially rent control for, for the mobile home parks, of which there are multiple in Orange. Uh, any rent increases are supposed to go through that, and also actually any evictions are kind of supposed to clear that. It's a little bit of a question how strong that board is and, and if they would take any action in a situation like this. Uh, um, so even though this is 11... Uh, of um, these actions listed, it's it's 19 people. Um, I don't know where 19 uh, low-income seniors would go if they get evicted from a manufactured home park in Orange during a pandemic. It's definitely an interesting story. We're going to continue to watch. Why did you decide to cover this story, even though it's in Orange, which is typically not part of the paper's reporting area? Well, Orange is in Franklin County. Um, you know, it's over on the edge and is kind of often thought of as, as you know, being part of the North Quab and uh, Athol, which it's kind of a suburb of, is in Worcester County. Uh, but because it's in Franklin County, um, you know, we're looking at everything that's going through the housing court and then going to the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, we mentioned something that is in Shelburne Falls also. We're, we're trying to give our readers a sense of, you know, as... Now that this statewide eviction moratorium has lifted on October 17th, who's actually making these these you know legal moves to kick people out of housing? Mm-hmm. I noticed also there was a public service announcement in the B section about services that are available to people um, in terms of COVID impact and housing, community legal aid has hired a case manager to provide help to people who might be at risk of losing their housing in central and western Massachusetts. So if anyone listening is in that situation, the website is communitylegal.org. There's kind of this uh, patchwork of of services and protections. Um, One of the things right now is that there's there's still a federal eviction moratorium um, that expires at the end of the calendar year. It's Mm -hmm. kind of a pretty interesting... um, that it, it expires during a you know lame duck term uh, of a of a presidency um, because basically that's you know nationwide kind of this uh, this bomb that's going to go off a, a law a very large backlog across the country you know, potentially of evictions um, but it's also you know that's not that is only protecting tenants if they take a number of steps they have to file an affidavit. Um, Kind of proving that they've exhausted all, all their means of getting support for making rent on their end, which makes some sense. But it's also, you know, that's the burden is on the on the tenant in that situation. Mm-hmm. Sarah's piece this week gets into uh, there's some legislation pending in Massachusetts on this guaranteed housing bill with 87 co-sponsors. Uh, it's in committee now in the state house, and um, you know that has um, protections for tenants, and then it also, uh, I think, crucially would set up a fund, a support fund for, you know, landlords, small landlords, essentially. So it's not just one side taking, taking a total bath, um, you know, based on, <laughs> based on the law. If this pandemic is going to continue to plod on as it seems like it is, um, you know, definitely not a, not a quick fix um, situation. Right. 
I think it was Joe Comerford that said that the state spends over $47,000 for a family for emergency housing, and it's a lot cheaper for the state to pay for people to stay where they already are. Right, absolutely. It's a, it's a pre- preventative step to just not have people kicked out of housing in the first place, if, if possible. And, you know, I mean, it happening in the context of COVID kind of sharpens the public's attention to the public health implications of our, our system of housing um, overall, I think, in this country. But, you know, it's um, there, there are big downstream costs for society, uh, you know, whenever this kind of disruption happens in people's lives. And um, I think that I think it's interesting um, that we're in, in a situation where there's something as concrete as, okay, there is a pandemic. Um, so because of that, you know, we can set these emergency policies, but, you know, that's essentially, um, that's the argument that Senator Comerford is making there. You know, that, that, that's a rational argument that precedes the pandemic for why uh, yeah. we should be investing public money in keeping people from losing housing instead of trying to, you know, run around and get, people back in shelter after they, you know, are having this uh, pretty, pretty grave trauma uh, in their, in their lives. Mm-hmm. I have to say that that's all uh, just my opinion. <laughs> and that uh, we'll, we'll continue um, looking at this, certainly. Mike, I loved the lead in Jeff Singleton's top article on A1 this week, asking is Montague, our little town of Montague, of 8,334, becoming a mecca for the legal pot industry? Yeah, so we're looking at, um, you know, there's there's one retail recreational cannabis shop uh, up by the airport, um, and they are connected with and, and kind of still, still um, building out or growing at this point, you know, a pretty big grow operation there. And this is now a second proposal. Some pretty heavy hitters um, from the local business world to uh, buy one of the lots, still empty lots up in that airport industrial park from the town of Montague and build a bunch of greenhouses. And it would be, I think, another pretty large scale operation. Definitely, we would be a net exporter of cannabis, I would say, the town of Montague, especially if this one is built. So... Yeah, well, I mean, how much marijuana can one town consume? Right. I would assume that we've been on average a net importer uh, up until recently. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so it would be a big, a big flip, I guess. you got to look to your comparative advantage. That's uh, what I learned in, in economics. Um, certainly, when, when we saw you know, the legalization statewide happen, uh, you know, I was able to look uh, at all of our different coverage towns and people had very different reactions to, to what should be done. And um, I think that there was a lot of excitement you know, that I saw around Town Hall and Montague about this is really a good way to expand the tax base. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of, of hue and cry from, from the populace at these at these meetings. Sometimes, you know, people do come around from social service agencies to, to point out that, you know, it's not wonderful for uh, teenage brain development in general, the, the marijuana, um, the stuff is sold only to adults. So I think that their, their argument is, you know, just more availability or, or setting, you know, this as a norm socially ha- has some um, downsides to it. But besides that, you know, I really haven't heard opposition at, at hearings to deciding cannabis facilities in Montague. There was an interesting proposal 
for a potential business in Miller's Falls, which will not actually have marijuana on the premises, but is going to be a courier service, a delivery service that Jeff didn't cover it this week, but I believe that was last week. Mm -hmm. Um, And they got the green light to rent space in downtown Miller's Falls and potentially grow over the next several years. Yeah, they've, they've got to set up um, these host community agreements uh, with the towns before they get, you know, the the stuff from the state that they need. So it's kind of, you know, one of the first time, well, in the case of this, this new one, you know, they've got to get a special permit for the idea of building on this site and it's tricky drainage and, and all this other stuff. So they're going to be going through it with the planning board or the, the zoning board of appeals. And we'll see if it gets into conservation commission territory too, um, cause it's mm-hmm. right on essentially the bank of the Connecticut river. Uh, but, um, you know, assuming that all the kind of site plan ducks are in a row, um, the, the interesting thing then becomes these host community agreements. And, you know, I know that um, the, the existing um, retail business, you know, they've agreed to do a certain amount of community service work locally, uh, their staff, and they agree to donate a certain amount of money to, to local nonprofits, um, uh, social service nonprofits, on top of the tax revenue that they're generating for the towns. So that stuff is all signed for under their host community agreement. One of the biggest questions I have about Montague cannabis businesses is, are any historically harmed communities represented in the people making money off of marijuana in town? Well, we'll have to see overall, but uh, the president and CEO of the company that is setting up that uh, Uber for cannabis, uh, quote unquote, um, business in, in Miller's Falls, did note um, in his application that he's part of the second tier equity cohort um, in the state cannabis control commission and uh, looking up what um, that uh, second cohort means is that uh, applicants must either have resided in the commission designated area of disproportionate impact for at least five of the past 10 years and their income does not exceed 400 percent of the area median income there or have a past drug conviction and have resided in Massachusetts, blah, 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 or are married to or are the child of a person with a drug conviction. Um, so uh, there's, you know, I don't, uh, I didn't go to that hearing, um, and I don't know uh, this particular entrepreneur, um, but it is something that the state is looking more at. But at the same time, it's also true that uh, Flower Power LLC, which is this company that's trying to set up uh, this new grow operation in the industrial park, Two of its three principals are uh, former presidents of companies that own major facilities in the same industrial park there, and uh, I think wouldn't qualify. I had to make a wild guess um, for the Cannabis Control Commission's uh, social equity program. Right. That, that's important to note as well. So there is a very interesting piece of environmental reporting in blue on page A1, also by Sarah Robertson. So we're missing Sarah here today, but uh, hopefully we'll have Sarah on the podcast soon. Yeah, she's really become ensnared in our little newspaper. Two A1 bylines in one week is a a very healthy sign. Yeah, impressive. Yeah, I I love this article. Um, This was something that 
a couple months ago, First Light, which is the big power company around here, owns the, the dam at Turner's Falls and Cabot Station and also owns Northfield Mountain, big hydroelectricity generator. So they are applying for a new license to do what they do from the federal government. And it's like dragging on. They've got the thing extended several times. Um, supposed to be a five-year thing. It's going into, I think it's ninth year, depending on how you count it. And Wow. They were supposed to turn in their final application on September 1st, and right before then, U.S. Fish and Wildlife sent them comment on a plan that they had filed back in like January that was partly a concern about their impacts on two species. One of them was a species of bat that lives in some trees that grow on land that the power company owns and sometimes cuts. Mm-hmm. And the other one um, is this this beetle, the Puritan tiger beetle, which is an endangered species. There was some stuff that popped out in that letter. Uh, There's a team of researchers at UMass Amherst that's been involved in trying to study these beetles and try to restore their habitat on the banks of the Connecticut River. And um, I called up that uh, lead scientist and and he wasn't uh, ready right then to talk to a reporter, but, uh, you know, we kind of put it on the back burner and Sarah was able to pick it back up and and connect with him. And it's a great story. It's a you know, one of these tying together uh, ecology and bureaucracies and, and make, making, you know, very concrete what this means uh, that, that the power company is doing, the water levels going up and down on the banks of the river. Mm-hmm. And uh, these poor little bugs are trying to lay eggs there. It was super interesting to read about because they live in sandy banks. And I guess the fluctuations in the river water levels does not have a good effect on their habitat. And this group from UMass actually did a a restoration where they reintroduced many Puritan tiger beetles into the Connecticut. This species actually only lives in the Connecticut River and the Chesapeake Bay, which is interesting. Yeah, and First Light, uh, you know, really tries to engage in, in Peaking. There's a daily spot market for energy prices that they sell electricity that they generate at Cabot Station on, and they want to, you know, put more water through those turbines when the price goes up. Because of that, they're sometimes sending, you know, a big kind of wave, a higher volume of water all at once down the river. And the next dam down is a, you know, operated by Holyoke Gas and Electricity at Holyoke, and. Uh, if they don't respond by opening up their gates also, it can really, I guess, back up uh, between Holyoke and Northampton and flood the beach that these uh, these bugs are <laughs> trying to be uh, reinstated upon. So the federal government, you know, has to figure out what limitations to, to put on the next license. And I'm going to probably have another piece in next week's paper talking to the power company about their end of it. And, and uh you know, if we're close now to seeing that application go in, people have been waiting for years to see, you know, what, what they're really going to ask the government for. And it's, this is big news that, you know, connects to a lot of things in our region, not just uh, rare insects, but also whitewater rafters, you know, who are trying to get them to do these um, peak daily releases uh, during the summer, which might actually be when these bugs are trying to breed and uh, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of a lot of competing interests that um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has to arbitrate essentially when they uh, design this new license. I know that the Montague Reporter had received a grant at some point to do environmental reporting. Is this supported by that? We have a little bit of money set aside for someone who wants to do environmental justice related reporting. 
And um, I don't think that the Beatles um, kind of qualify this story for that. So mm-hmm. sadly, no. Um, if any of our listeners have any time on their hands, we can uh, pay you slightly better than our usual terrible per article fees for, for writing if you want to um, get into some environmental justice issues that affect the towns of Irving, Gill, or Montague. What is environmental justice? Can you explain that? Well, environmental justice is uh, kind of the concept that, you know, the, the impact that people are having on on the, the environment, you know, as this big abstract thing actually impacts different people differently, right? One typical example might be, you know, a, a factory that's um, polluting, you know, in a, in a poor neighborhood or uh, where landfills are sited generally tend to be low in uh, low income neighborhoods or towns, and you know that's that's one one manifestation. Just you know things that affect people more directly uh, lower on kind of those those social hierarchies of power. You are. I just want to say I am loving the new collaboration between the Montague Reporter and student journalists at Turner's Falls High School. And the most recent article was um, was by Cheyenne Cordes with Savannah Cordes about their experiences as young women riding BMX and doing BMX races. So it's really interesting. I encourage everyone to check it out. It starts on A1 and then spills on to A4. Yeah, there's a, a journalism class happening now um, this semester at Turner's Falls High School. Um, we're totally psyched to be publishing some of the stuff that the students in that class are writing, um, sharing it with a broader community. Also next to the BMX article is just one of those like gems that I find every week in the newspaper as a reader. Not sure exactly what this means, but I love it. You are the president-elect of this newspaper. And then it has all of the contents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to affirm our, our reader's power to, to read whatever they want to inside the paper. <laughs> lest, lest any doubt be sowed. Yes. Um, we don't have a newspaper on uh, Thanksgiving Day. Um, we come out on Thursdays, so we'll have the last week of November off. We've got one more issue this month, and then we hop over to December. Sweet. But what we are going to be uh, using that week um, to print this special wrapping paper issue, so you'll all be hearing a lot more about that. And uh, we've got a lot of really beautiful designs, and we're going to be selling them in a bunch of local stores. And we're also going to be open, I guess, uh, the the last Saturday morning in November and the first two Saturdays in December here at the Montague Reporter office for people to pick those up. Nice. They're like $5 a pop or four for 20. Can't wait to get my hands on some beauteous wrapping paper that will, I'm sure, become family heirlooms that we like pass back and forth. Thank you for listening to the Montague Reporter podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review because it helps us get more listeners. You should also subscribe to the Montague Reporter newspaper by going to the website montaguereporter.org slash subscribe. Thank you to Blue Dot Sessions for our music. And thanks to Greenfield Community Television for technical support and equipment. We'll be back with a new episode soon. 
please feel free to call us at 413-863-8666 with any comments, questions, or musings. And you can email us at podcast at montaguereporter.org, uh, which goes to Sarah. Yay. Thanks All right. for listening. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Sarah.